painful of time that is. If you're getting right. visions of a mouse warrior in your sleep, you might be the next uh, defender of Red White. If a magic sword's come flinging off the roof of an ancient church of a nebulous religion, you might be the chosen one. If you have to go on a goddamn riddle quest just to find the weapon of your ancestors, you might be taken be being taken for a ride by the ghost of a mouse. <laughs> the Jeff Foxworthy jokes. Oh, we can't cold open like that again. We can't do two cold opens in an episode. No. Yes, we can. Start the intro over. <laughs> Roll the intro again. Here come the game grumps. No. <laughs> oh, God. That's one of my favorite skits of theirs. No word of a lie. Just their entire Sonic Boom playthrough is, I think, one of my favorites out of any they've ever done. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I'm Kit. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Izzy. I use she, seer pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. So today we are reading the second half of the first book in Martin the Warrior, chapters 8 through 15. Content warnings include slavery, bodily harm, torture, bird, just one bird this time, but big bird, bird. Uh, interrogation via torture, although we never actually see it, but it's it, it, it comes up several times. Yeah, like at least twice. Um, open ocean, including Big, big, nebulous ocean beastie. And child endangerment. Also implied future problems through prophecy. Yeah, so if prophetic visions are an issue for you, don't read this book. (laughs) Um, It's not like we get, like, full in-depth descriptions, but it's just like, there's there's a little bit where it's like, oh, magic old lady in the middle of the woods. Yes, yes. Yes. Just, I love this. This book has 
it doesn't have a lot of Arthurian stuff, but then like every now and then something will pop up and it's like, oh yeah, there it is. Okay. Random woman giving away swords in the middle of lakes to just anyone who walks past. That's not, no That's not the way it. that quote goes, but I can't remember the proper quote. Some voice and bead loved a scimitar at me. They'd hold me away. Help, help. I'm being repressed. <laughs> yeah. So we start the second half with a slowly disheartening clog. His plan isn't working. For all they've battered away at the gate, there's little sign of success. They don't know that the other side of the gate has a bunch of rocks and shit stacked up against it. Well, so they like, don't know. <laughs> the gate's not going to crack. Like, you're going to get, like, wood splintering, but because a lot of that shock is now being absorbed by sand and rocks and shit, it's not going to break. Because, like, yeah, impact distribution. Yay. They don't know the science behind it, but they know it works. Science. Um, but also, rabbits, even if it does, like, break, all of that is going to, like, fall forward onto them. Right. And so they'll get is, crushed and suffocated. Yeah. It's just not going to work. Nope. And the rammers sit under the boat, nursing sore and skinned paws, ignoring Clog's jibes and threats to stand up and give it another few goes. He's like, come on, we can do it. It's just a few more. And the guys are like, ah, no, you said man, that for an hour ago. Work. I thought you said, oh. No, I said, you said that arf an hour ago. Yeah. Then, Clog is alerted to a problem. One of his, you know, one of his little sidekicks or minions comes along, knocks on the side of the boat and goes, hey, uh, boss, there's a, you need to come look at this. And it takes him a moment of staring at the red glow on the southerly horizon for it to click. When it does, though, Clog goes into a full raging fury. He curses Badrang, swearing in many colorful ways and at and about him for burning his ship. As he And he flies at the gate, attacking its sword, claw, and tooth. And would you like to read his swearing? Because it is yes, very creative. Yes, it's, because it's very creative and colorful and would make your mother faint dead away. <laughs> what uh, page is that again? That is 69. I found it. It's 70. 70. All right. The ferret pointed to the ready orange glow illuminating the sky belong the he beyond the headland. It took a moment for realization to sink in, and then the pirate stoat let out an agonized wail and began tearing at his braided beard, the clumsy wooden clogs clicking together as he performed an anguished jig on the shore. Ah! That slime-coated villain's burning me ship! Urgh, me loverly sea scurb! Pride of me heart! Badrang, you rotten, foul-nosed worm, stinking, screw-tailed, stoat, warp-eyed, snotty-snouted shark. The corsair crew looked on in dismay as their captain gave full vent to his spleen. Hurling himself at the gates, he hacked with his cutlass, kicked with his clogs, even gnawed savagely at the woodwork with his teeth as he yelled between mouthfuls of splinters, I'll rip your liver and lights out and feed him to the crabs. I'll cut off in your head and throw it in your face. I'll string up your tripes for rigging. I'll pickle your, ta I'll pickle your tail and burn in bran. Oh, oh, And He's it's just... super fucking pissed. Yeah. Clog is like... fucking pissed. Yeah, it's like, and now he is not only a cornered enemy who's got nothing left to lose, now it's even more personal because Badrang knows how important a ship is to a Corsair. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the most personal screw you 
a, a, a former Corsair can give to another. Just like, haha, you can't leave now. Fuck it, you. Mm-hmm. Scalrag and his crew watch the ship burn. And once he's convinced she's done for, turns and orders them to take care of the longboats. No burning. That'll draw more attention. They'll just poke holes in the hulls. Not knowing that Skullrag and his crew were headed for the same longboats, Martin and company are heading for them as well. They know that there should be a group coming to try and rescue the ship, and sure enough, Corsairs are rushing from the fortress. Grum spots the vermin at the boats, bemoaning their bad luck. It's foes before and foes behind, but there's fewer before them, so Martin has Feldo go with him to fight and orders the other three to take a boat and get it out into the water. With that, they charge, screaming in defiance. And it's like, why are you going by sea? You finally got away. Why aren't you going over the headlands? Like, just go around the fortress and go via land. You're not seafaring creatures. It's kind of implied earlier on in the book that, like, Badrang doesn't have any boats anymore. So maybe that's why? And I suppose, like, it does seem like Rose knows how to, like, at least get close-ish to Noonvale on the water. Like, she knows the direction they need to go. And water travel is faster than overland, if you know what you're doing. But they were also Um, trapped between pirates, slavers, the ocean, and a cliff face. Oh, that's true. I forgot about the cliff face. So it's like, mmm... And Marshank. Like, Marshank is also another option, and it's like, well, there's less of the the slavers over there, and there's boats, so let's go with the ocean. Let's go with the ocean. The ocean will at least get away relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. So, they dive in barehanded, and since Skullrug had hesitated, managed to get the upper hand. Feldo nearly throttles the fox. Martin fights like a fiend. And even Grum and Rose get a few brained rats in a piece. Martin is, like, drowning a rat while Not also only trying dr- to, yeah. like, beat one up. Like, motherfucker, you are vicious. He's got, like, one a rat in one hand. Where is it? Uh... Martin was holding on to one rat who was trying to stop the boat while he held the head of another under the water. Like, Martin. Sir. Brom gets a small boat going towards the ocean as the Corsairs arrive. Rose and Grum jump in the boat. Martin, quick of thought and paw, gets Fellow off Scalrag and pushes the fox towards the vermin, saying he was one of Bad Rang's lots trying to steal their boats. While their enemies pounce on Scalrag, the two fighters hop in the boat. The vermin do catch on and start to try and grab for the fleeing group. They're like, hey, hey, hey wait a minute, these are not Corsairs, these are not some of us. Feldo is almost caught, but Rose manages to once again brain a couple of rats, and Martin hauls the now waterlogged squirrel on board. Like, his tail was literally dragging him down because it was so soaked with water. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also caught in, like, a little tug of war where the rats are like, no, 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 and that's why they got brained. The Corsairs move to chase them. Martin encourages everyone to paddle however they can, getting very puzzled when Grum refuses to budge. He explains he's doing his best to plug a great hole. Brome giggles, Feldo disapproves, but he points at the pursuing boats. The boats are sinking as Rose realizes why Scalrag had been at the longboats. He'd been scuppering them. They'd just been lucky to grab the boat with the smallest hole. 
As the vermin sink, the fleeing group cheers out, Freedom! Poor Grum, having to sit there getting his butt wet. Grum on his bum! Poor Grum on his bum! Poor little mole. I know. Wouldn't it have been easier to have Feldo stick his tail through the hole? I mean, maybe, but the tail would have caused more drag? I guess. Also, the anything could have come up and just bit him. Exactly. It's like, yeah, let's just put a nice little dangling bait underneath the... Especially because of what happens later on in the chapters. A lure. A lure. At least they wouldn't have gone hungry. Oh my god, you, the way you said that, now my brain is just that TikTok audio meme. It's like, Lloyd. It's... I don't know that one. It's from Lego Ninjago or something like that. It's like, Lloyd. Yeah, it's me, and it's Lloyd, Dad, L-L-O-Y-D. I named you. You ruined my life! How could I ruin your life? I wasn't even there! (laughs) Just brain goes back to the song a boy named Sue. (laughs) Lloyd. Don's... No, you're fine. Don sees an uneasy quiet. Inside Marshank, the defenders rest and eat, wiped out from the night's fight. Badrang is satisfied. He defended his fortress. But you know his clog will be back. Speaking of clog's crew, they sit and cook and stew in surly silence. They'd failed to get into Marshank and also lost their ships. Behind a rocky outcrop, clog and some of his messmates interrogate Scalrag and six of his cohorts. They're bound head to toe in tough, dry kelp. Clog terrifies Scalrag, asking him what he'd do to creatures who burned his ship. Scalrag can't reply due to being muzzled by the kelp, so Clog cuts it off with a swipe of his cutlass, along with some of Scalrag's whiskers. The fox faints and is revived with seawater by mocking corsairs. Clog holds his cutlass to Scalrag's nose. No worry, he won't take off his head. That's too easy for a shipburner like him. He has the others tell him what exactly they do to ship burners, and they describe a few gruesome things. And do you want to read the litany? Yes, I'm going to read the litany. Tremont Clog put the point of his cutlass to Skalrag's nose tip. I wouldn't chop your head off, bucko. Oh no, that'd be too quick for the likes of you. Avast mates tell the scum what we do to ship burners and scuttlers. The corsairs tickled Skalrag with their knife points as they told him. String him upside down in a crab pool. Roast him over a a slow fire. Chop off his paws and make him eat him. Use him for a batter and rammock in the fortress gates. Oh no, please, Captain! Skalrag wailed in despair. Don't let him do it. I was only carrying out Badrang's orders. And it's like, this feels like a darker version of what do you do with a drunken sailor? (laughs) What do you do with the drunken sailor? What do you do with the drunken sailor? What do you do with the drunken sailor? Day in the morning. String him upside down in a crab pool. String him upside down in a crab pool. (laughs) Fucking God. (laughs) Doesn't it though? Um, But yeah, just... (sighs) Poor Scalrag. (laughs) He is the punching bag of this portion of the book. Oh, boy. Um, But Scalrag uses the old excuse that he was just following orders. Oldest excuse in the book. That doesn't work. Clog plays at being gentle, saying, of course he won't hurt him, as long as he does exactly what he says. 
Scourg says, he will indeed, on his honor as a fox. Clog says, good, because if he doesn't, he'll do worse than his crew suggested. Then he proceeds to give his orders. Skullrag does spare a moment to ask about the other six, and Clog says they'll be fish bait before nightfall. Like, Clog sits there and it's like literally the next bit is just like, Clog sat by the fox and stroked his head soothingly. There, there, now, matey, dry your eyes and don't blubber no more now. Old Tremoon Clog's got us uh, and our softest swans down. Like, yeah. sir, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you do not. Inside the slave compound, the tired beasts rest and consider their situation. Bark John sums it up nicely. It's bad either way. If Bad Rain wins, they stay slaves. If Clog wins, they'll be slaves on a galley with even less chance of survival or escape. It's basically like the Clog ending is kind of worse, but you know, it's, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. Yep. Kayla lightens the mood a little by reporting the three in the prison pit had escaped. Barkjohn almost cries, joyful his son is free and sure to bring rescue to them all. Hope spreads, the old squirrel having to silence a few cheers to let Kayla keep speaking. And Kayla does speak. Speeches are all nice and pretty and all, but they need to help themselves. So he shows the weapons he'd taken during the chaos. Others come forward, adding to their little horde. It's like, this is a literal call to action. It's like, it's yeah, really go. good because we get like a bunch of different, like we get a good look at a bunch of different people who are in this like compound. Mm-hmm. So there's Kayla and then there is Purslane, a mother mouse. And she literally has like her baby and she takes a few like little weapon bits from inside the baby's shawl to add to the pile. And we get, like, people, there, there's a few other people who drop things that they picked up, and it's, like, not a lot. Like, it's broken things, it's small bits and pieces, it's, like, there's two arrows but no bow. Uh, a little hedgehog, little more than a baby, tottered out and threw his offering on the small pile of armaments. Dagger and stones to throw! Like, like... They've all been uh, helping... <laughs> They're all working together in whatever little ways they can. Hi, hello, this is yet again Izzy telling people who listen to our podcast that if you work somewhere, unionize. <laughs> Do it. Another. It doesn't matter if there's nothing wrong with your job. It doesn't matter if there's nothing wrong and everything's fine and dandy. Unionize anyway. <laughs> because uh, capitalism doesn't care about us and shit might go wrong at any moment. Six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. You might as well work together to make sure that you don't have to deal with either option. Another otter named Tulguru says she'll bury the lot beneath her sleep spot. That's weird. Why did I write he? I think you were maybe thinking of Kayla at the time. Yeah. Oh, I don't think they actually say... Yeah, they never actually give her a gender. And I just automatically I assumed that I they gave the Tulgru... gender a little bit later. Hold on. Yeah, not in this chapter, though. Yeah, they never say... They only refer to her by name. And that she's an otter. They never actually say her gender. But yeah, Tulgru is a girl. We learn that later on. Um, but she says she'll bury the lot beneath her sleep spot to keep it safe. After one more bit of encouragement, the group splits up. Droop pretends to sleep while watching Tulgru bury the weapons. He doesn't realize 
Kayla is watching him. Who watches the Watcher? God, fucking, what does Brian have against voles? I mean, voles kind of are nasty little critters. I mean, but so, okay, here's the thing. So are otters, so are mice, so are hedgehogs, so are moles, like, they all have their own things going on. And it's, he just seems to focus on bank voles because they look the most, I guess, like, hold on, let me look up what a vole looks like again. I, I also think partially it's because voles and shrews, like, very traditionally have, like, negative roles in mythology or storytelling that uses animals as people. Because okay. if you think now, of, like, other me, series. Let me show you what a bank vole looks like. Hold on, because I thought they looked more rat than this. <laughs> But here, come into the recording text channel. They're just and let little me just... guys. They're just little guys. That's a mouse. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what does Brian have against these little guys? I, I think it's because, like, he feels they're just close enough to being vermin-like that he can get away with them being the evil ones. What? Shrews look more like rats than they do. I know. I mean, he picks on shrews a lot, too. I mean, fuck, hold on. Let me show you this picture of a shrew that I just found. Shrews are definitely more rat-like, though, than, um... Look at this fucking thing. (laughs) Shrews are unnerving. I don't... Did you know that they can literally, like, make their body more dense? They can compress and (laughs) densify their bones. Shrews can be squished almost completely flat. And be completely fucking fine. <laughs> Shrews are weird. They're fucking weird. <laughs> Alright. Anyway, yeah. So, bankfuls look like mice, and shrews look like little critters from hell. And for some reason, Brian is like, well, shrews are fine, except for the ones in this book. Voles, on the other hand, awful. Hate them. They're gonna be the weird offense sitters of every single fucking book I write where they're in. Or a bratty child. Or a Which bratty I'm child. not gonna be as mad about the bratty child because they're a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, they're kids. And, and especially in um, Madame Mayo, like, that kid was like, she was going through some shit. Yeah... Like, we can say everything we want, but, like, at the end of the day, she was a child going through a traumatic event, and how her brain decided to cope was to cry. Well, yeah. Yep. So, like, I I just, I don't understand, especially the adults, where it's just like, Brian, be nice. You just gotta have somebody to pick on. Like, are the bank voles supposed to be, like... I don't know enough about European history to actually name, like, a specific group of people that they're supposed to be. Well, I mean, if we're going by, like, Brian pulling from, like, old history, it could be, like, a case of, like, they're the Saxons versus the Britons kind of a thing. Where it's, like, the Saxons have their own villages and kind of live by themselves and we're moving in. And the Britons were like, well, that's, hey, that's whoa, whoa, That's the whoa. shrews. That's more the shrews. With the voles, it kind of feels... Because mm-hmm. the voles are definitely have a lot of the, like sell out mentality or the like uh only care about myself so i'm wondering if he's picking on a class of people he could be because i was gonna say that just kind of sounds like the you know the the kind of person who'd turn traitor on you yeah 
Um, but like that that sounds like he's focusing on like either a personality type or a class because I was trying to think of maybe like he was because a lot of the times with the allegories we get with the different creatures, they're like a specific peoples, right? Yeah. yeah. Um or like from a specific like part of the UK type vibe. Mm-hmm. Um whereas like some and then other times it's like mm, but these are uh like the good lower class people the moles yeah these are the bad lower class people or black people or jewish people or romani people or anybody who is not stereotypical white british dude aka yeah. the vermin yeah. or, uh in many many ways um or the you know savage tribe tropes etc 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 so it's like i I don't know there's just it it feels bad when we have this this dichotomy this like very very stark dichotomy and then we have this one species that he kind of plays at having a grayer area with but it doesn't come across well Mm mm-hmm He's, we, he's... We, this this week with this book has just been a big discussion on Brian falling back into comfortable tropes every time he pushes at that like comfort zone and then mm-hmm. he falls back into it. It's like you can see little like I mentioned later, you can see little glimmers of him almost wanting to step out of it, but then nope, he pulls back into it and keeps going. Yeah. Had a good conversation with Skylake about castaways uh yesterday. Even though oh. I've never read it, uh, apparently he does us bit of a similar thing in castaways but he pushes that boundary a lot further okay um but it's still kind of falling into the familiar i don't know i'm just very weirded out at how brian separates these things out when it comes to having very specific species that end up with very specific traits and tropes attached to them i i do feel a big chunk of that comes from the traditional literary tropes of how like in mythologies in mythology especially you would have animals who filled specific roles in mythology you'd see it looking up bank voles in mythology i mean i don't know about bank voles but like you see it in aesop's fables how the fox is always the trickster the the crow is like kind of a nebulous figure you have other characters are like if it's a predator they're always out to get something but if it's the prey they either have to be cunning or they fall prey to the predator you know it's it's the the boiling it down to we need this to teach a lesson don't think too hard about it which is not good you should always think hard about it but things are looking bad for the five in the boat it's sinking faster than they can bail out even with grum doggedly keeping up his work as a plug to make things worse still, a great fish appears and rams the boat. Martin grabs the oars and then splits it between them. Feldo and Brom on one, Rose, Martin, and Grum on the other. They'll serve as floats, and if separated by the ocean, they're to all head for Noonvale. And sure enough, the ship does sink, and Martin just catches a glimpse of a deep-sea fish chasing it down into the depths. So what happens is... They feel something hit the boat. Like, to get just more specific, they feel something hit the boat, and they're all like, oh, I hope that that we hit, like, a rock or something, and it's not a fish. Rose looks over the side, goes fucking pale, and then looks up at the sky as if nothing happened. And they're all like, no, don't do that, Rose. What is it? She's like, it's a big fucking fish. 
And then it splits, it hits the boat again, cracks it. They start getting more water in. And then it busts the boat and they all, like, hit the water. And it chases the boat into the depths. Yep. And as It doesn't go after them at all. No, it's having, it's, it's playing with the boat. Like, it's literally playing with the boat. Yeah. Um, as Martin had worried, the ocean almost immediately turns against them yet again. The ocean Feldo doesn't care Brome, about your feelings. Feldo and Brome are swept away, and Martin's oar nearly goes under with the weight of three creatures on it. So, like, he lets go and is nearly lost to the water, only just managing to paddle back to hold on to Grum's paw. And to add insult to injury, a rainstorm starts, and they're all doing their best to keep their heads above water. And Feldo and Brome have the bad luck of the great fish showing back up again. It's playing with the boat like a toy. And it's like, hey, Brian, are you sure this isn't like a dolphin? I literally, I was at this point, Nichelle and Drake had left the the group call and it was just me and Skylake and I had to stop and I was like, this is a dolphin. And then I yeah. clicked over to the document and saw that you made the exact same comment. This is a dolphin because yeah. they describe it as having uh, the inside of its mouth is like a fleshy pink. It has mm-hmm. a, a row of sharp white teeth. This is a dolphin. Yeah. And not only that, but like it jumps into the air. It's playing like yeah. before Feldo had a chance to reply, the water beneath them heaved and they were both lifted high into the air the big fish had hauled the sinking boat around like an empty pea pod. It had found something to play with. Its huge body buffeted and banged the boat about. This is just a dolphin playing around like, hey, cool, what's this novel thing in my space? Hold on, I'm looking up what uh, medieval dolphin art looked like. Oh, you're going to have fun with that. Because, like, especially, like, the, because, one, none of them have ever really been on the water. They're not Mm -hmm. water people. Mm -hmm. Like, they wouldn't know that a dolphin wasn't a fish. Like, they'd see a dolphin and they wouldn't. Dolphins were classified as fish for a long time. They were. Also, medieval dolphins look fucked up. (laughs) <laughs> this isn't what this is more renaissance and not medieval but i need to show you show you this particular image <laughs> yeah yeah that's about what i expected and then the medieval let me i've got a um a, a medieval piece of artwork as well i like the ones just like chomping on an octopus yeah <laughs> yeah like they're they just them weird fish, fish. yeah yeah because, like, they couldn't, like, you could potentially catch them, but if you, it's a lot of people who did these manuscripts had never seen these creatures before. They only had descriptions. Mm-hmm. And so you'd end up with these weird things like fish. And, like, none of these uh, uh, mammals who still live on land and have never been on the water a day in their lives would know that, like, this is a mammal <laughs> because they, it's just a giant fish to them. Exactly. God, wait, hold on. How big is a dolphin? While you're looking that up, distracted by the two on the oar, it charges them and takes the oar away. They manage to get the wreckage of the boat to rest on in exchange, at least. Fellow takes the chance to look for the others. He spots what might be land, if not his friends. Brome is only too happy to hear about the sighting of land and that they're headed right for it. Okay. Common bottlenose dolphin is uh, around five foot seven inches long. 
Okay, from yeah, tip to tail. Yeah, that's a giant for a mouse. Yeah. Uh, and how big is a wild mouse? I mean, a dolphin could absolutely eat a mouse in one I don't bite. have... Okay, an adult field mouse can be up to 10.5 centimeters in length. Not counting its tail. And its tail can be between 6 to 9 centimeters. So, you know, about... <laughs> from tip to tail, about... 19 centimeters at mm -hmm. largest <laughs> and the comparison also dolphins can weigh uh 330 to 1400 pounds mm -hmm. a mouse weighs 0. 0.68 ounces mm -hmm. i'm sorry for everybody who uses um not american system i'm Imperial? not converting it I'm not converting it. I love all of you. I'm not converting it. I don't feel like doing math. <laughs> Google gives me it in American units. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, so like, itty bitty mouse that's like the size of one of these dolphins' teeth. Or it's, its eyeball. Time. Yeah. And then this massive creature that's a leviathan. For this thing to just play with their boat like it's a toy... Um, this dolphin's probably young, mm -hmm. so it's probably at half the size of a full-size dolphin. I mean, sometimes, like, even older dolphins, they just play because they can. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's implied that this dolphin can hold the boat in its mouth, so that means it is still much bigger than the boat, but the boat is not so small that it's like it could just swallow it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're also playing fast and loose with red wall sizing where the mice and stuff are definitely bigger than they should be. But they're still not human sized. Yeah. And it's like seems later when on, it comes have to that... like ocean fish, Brian sticks to relatively life size. Mm -hmm. I mean, also remember later in this same book, we have one of the shrews get picked up by a gannet. And like the bird is gannet. bird size, like. Gannets are big. Gannets are like big predatory birds. I'm going um, uh... Okay, for some reason I'm like, how big is X creature? And it gives me its weight, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I want how its size. 3 to 3.6 feet. So, like, the gannet is, is huge, and these, the shrews that we see later on are fucking tiny. Yeah. How would it have even... How, hold on. Now I'm doing more Google. Sorry, this is where we have to see how big animals are. This is our how big is an animal segment. It's our it's our usual debate of like, hey, Brian, what is with the, the size scale? Like, I still stand by there animal sized with a little bit of fiddling for adjustment to make them more equal in size. Okay, hold on. Because um... otherwise birds wouldn't be dragons. Because if they were people-sized, then all the animals would have to be scaled up, too, for them to have the same terror factor. Alright, while Izzy's doing that. Sorry, Around I'm, sunset I'm... the same day, the other three realize they are heading towards land. Rose spots a landmass, and Martin pushes through his wariness to paddle them towards it. Like, they're still getting rained on while this is happening. Like, it's still just, like, pouring down rain on them. So they're cold from the water. 
believe like they're cold from the water they're in they're cold from the water coming down on them they're just having a very bad time okay and since izzy's still going are you are you good izzy can we continue with the reading hold on and i'm just gonna say now again while izzy's still doing sort of thing uh there's a hair in the chapter art. And when I saw that, I just went, oh, okay. Like, I know, I know we're never going to have a Redwall book where there isn't a hair, but at least we got this many chapters in, at least we got 10 chapters in before he introduced one this time. So yeah, like, I feel bad. I feel bad that I generally dislike most of the hairs, but I just do. I don't like their character types. Although yeah, I was trying to use a height, height chart to get like a comparison size, but the one I was using was bad. Um, pygmy shoes are 2.2 inches. Oh dear. So That's a baby is going to be like half that. So it's like one inch long. How did the gannet not just eat the baby immediately? Because then there wouldn't be a rescue scene because it was also taking it up to its babies. I guess. Anyway. Yeah. So Sorry. I just, you know. I have to know. Where are we again? <laughs> okay. We're at the Caesar hair in the chapter. Ah, uh, yes. You're, yes, you're on the yes. next annotation. You're good. Yes. Okay. Next we see Droop. He's looking for the food promised to him by Skalrag, but he's caught by the weasel Captain Hisk, who threatens to kill him. Droop isn't frightened, acting cocky instead. Skalrag will protect him, and besides, he's a spy. He has valuable information. And it's like, Brian writing Droop, I'm going to make the most satisfying to go character in this book. Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to make such a bastard. Yep. Hisk wants to know what that is, and Droop tells him the prisoners have escaped. He drags Droop with him, saying that if he's lying, he'll kill him. And besides, He doesn't actually take Droop with him to doesn't... the prison pit. Oh. He threatens to do it, and Droop says, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? You know where I am at all times. Mm. Go look, and then come back to me. And, and Hisk is like, if you're lying, I will fucking kill you. Okay. And Droop is like, all right, I'm not lying, though. And, like, he goes and he checks, and... Yeah. And it's just, like, I it's interesting to, to see him just, like, abruptly switch over to, like, this cocky, like, confident in his, like... I have information. I'm a spy. You have to, you, you can't hurt me. I'm going to preemptively apologize if there are any mechanical noises in the background. My neighbor is taking care of a really nasty snow spot because we got like probably about three or four foot of snow dumped on us over the week. Uh, the, not the weekend, but like in the middle of the week. And, um, there's a real bad spot right outside my house where people get stuck every time we have a snowstorm. So it takes somebody with actual like construction equipment to go and clean the snow out of that spot. So if you hear that, that is what that sound is. And I apologize. Um, back to the book though. Hisk tells Bad Rang, who's standing watch on the ramparts, that the three in the slave pit or the prison pit have escaped. And he has no idea how they did it. When asked how Hisk had learned of this, he explains about Droop. Badring orders him brought to the longhouse in utmost secrecy, so the other slaves don't know. And it's like, spies don't stay spies very long if everyone knows they're a spy. 
Like I'm thinking that Droop is probably going to uh, end up turning on Badrang to uh, Clog. Like I'm calling this. Mm-hmm. I think Droop is going to turn on Badrang, give information to Clog, and either get murked by Clog or murked by Badrang. Yeah. Or again, something karmic's going to get happen. Like he might get picked up by a bird, or he'll anger the wrong creature who knows like he's going Shot to down die in the middle of a battle exactly like he's going to die we know he's going to die the only question yeah. is how and when so just then clog calls up from below asking if bad rang's had enough yet and bad rang smoothly calls good fucking banter bad rang smoothly calls back saying isn't he who's had enough ship burnt boat scuttled the sea behind and a horde and a fortress ahead What's he got left? And Clog counters, saying Badring's crew is a few short. He'd killed the six others and now has Skullrag nicely trussed up. Oh, and some of his slaves had escaped. So what does Clog want? Clog says he wants a parlay with Badring. Badring isn't biting, and even after Clog threatens a lifelong siege of the place, keeps his cool. He asks if he can have a night to consider, and Clog says, aye, he can. And when he requests to have Scalrag back, as a sign of good faith, Clog agrees to this too. When he suggests opening up the gate to send Scalrag in, he's shot down. Badrang will lift him up with a rope and a basket. Like, Badrang's like, uh, no, 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 I'm not that stupid. Also, Badrang can't currently open the gate. It is currently got a bunch of shit behind it. Yeah, but he doesn't I... have to let Clog know that absolutely love the code switching that Badrang is doing here. The way that he talks to his men as a tyrant versus how he talks to Clog as a corsair. Because mm-hmm. it There's mentions two different him slipping. languages. Yeah. It mentions it's, him slip, slipping back into it. Yeah. Um, a cry rang up from the shore. Badrang, old messmate, sing out, have you had enough? Such you, Clog Miardi. The tyrant smiled thinly as he slipped back into the old Corsair language. I'm the one who should be asking you that question. I've burned your ship, stoved in your boats, and left you with naught but the sea behind you, and me with me fortress and me horde in front of you. What do you say to that? Like, it's just interesting because you don't hear Badrang speaking like that except to Clog. Mm-hmm. So that, that code switching is really, really fun and interesting to me. I, I like that. I think that's a good bit of, like, world writing. Because, like, people do that. I have code switching that I do regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it's something subtle, too. Because I know there there are words I will use around my friends. Like, I swear a lot more when I'm in calls with friends. (laughs) But then when I'm, like, with family or, like, around my mother, I don't swear nearly as much, if at all. Or, like, if we're out in public. Or I'll tend to, like slur my I will slur my words more just like around mom and dad like I'll use words and slangs that I won't use here in recording because when I'm recording I'm paying attention and I'm trying to enunciate and speak properly so more people can understand me but if it's just me and mom talking like oh you know it's just me and mom and I gotta water the plants and it's like the the central California accent water instead of water (laughs) it's water you know um because we don't say our t's evidently if they're in the middle of a word like people just like say Sacramento and it's like metal. I get a lot of people, mental. especially at work, who are like, are you from the South? And I'll have to explain, like, technically no, but I've lived here for 
most of my life since I was like eight years old. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm from the South. I have a Southern accent, but I code switch at work and I don't use it that much because I'm at work and I've been, you know, we've all heard the thing, especially my, my good, uh, lower income Southerners will know this. A, a Southern accent, a drawl, a, any kind of slur into your words is not professional. Mm-hmm. It sounds bad. So when you're at work, you start speaking more, you enunciate more. Like, not everybody does this. There's a lot of people who have trained themselves out of it. And I'm kind of trying to do that. But I'm also a military brat. And so my default is kind of a much softer Southern accent where, like, mm-hmm. if I am anywhere but the South, you can fucking hear it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in the South, people are like, where the fuck are you from? And I'm like, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're like, really? Where? Augusta. And they're like, huh. <laughs> Wouldn't yeah. have pegged it. <laughs> okay. So let's see. And then there's also queer code switching, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole different thing. And that is not what Badrang is doing. Mm-hmm. This is a class uh, level of code switching. Yeah. So, with the exchange over, Skalrag is sent back, and Clog leaves. Not long after, Badring tortures Skalrag for information. It's like, this fox is definitely the punching bag of this book. Uh, and it's gonna come up in a little bit, but because Badring does this, Skalrag dies. So, dies. you know, he's dead now. He's dead. He's gone. He's a, he's a dead fox. Rip and rest of the only fox in the book that we've had any attention paid to. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, actually had kid. his name given yet? I know it happens every book. Yeah. The, the foxes are vermin, apparently. Wolves <sighs> are also apparently vermin. Yeah. Even though, like, we never really get to see them. Yeah. Would have loved a book with wolves in it. My first original Redwall OC, who became Bodica, by the way, was a, a pirate wolf. Boudica. Okay, I know that the historical figure's name is Boudica. I, one, did not know that she existed when I made this character. And I named her Boudica. I gave you the name! I told you about Boudica! And that's why you gave Uh, her the name! I do not remember this. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I don't remember it. I have the memory of a fucking potato. That's okay. Um, are yeah, we gonna no, have another? Are we gonna have another Felly situation here? Feli, Felly. It is spelt Felly. Izzy. Her name is Feli, though. <laughs> Actually, her real name is Felicia, but she doesn't use that name because she hates it. Valid. Um, okay. So we need to get through this book. Damn it! <laughs> no. Okay. We good? Yes. Brome and Feldo land near where the sea scarab was burnt. Feldo keeps them moving with plans to skim around Marshank and then head for Noonvale. Brome chatters as they walk until Feldo hushes him. There's the sound of someone singing. The two crawl towards a crevice in the cliff face. And they're greeted by the sight of an odd little tent, held up by rocks and a two-wheel wagon. Shadows are cast on the canvas by firelight, and they listen to the odd song being sung inside. Would you like to read the song? I would. Oh, we're the rambling rosehip players, and we please both old and young. O'er fields serene and forest green, our praises have been sung. 
We're the rambling rosehip players, and we'll take on any part. Bring a tear to your eye to make you cry, or joy to the saddest heart. Though the road may be tough and the patch run rough, and weather be cold or gray, with a smile and a song we'll travel along on our rambling rosehip way. Hey! Fucking love them. <laughs> so, there's a hair. As Felda, as Felda discovers when a pasty is thrown at the tent and the hare dives after it. The hare, the pasty lands on Feldo's head, right? <sighs> it's like half-eaten pasty. And then a hare dives out of the tent onto his head and then a fight ensues. A fight that involves not just the hare, but some mice, a mole, or a mice? Anyway, mice, uh, two, two mice, two I mice, believe. a Hold mole, on. and two squirrels dive out of the tent to join the now ongoing fight between Feldo, Brome, and... Oh, it doesn't what? say... Hold on. It doesn't say how many mice they are to start with. It just says mice, a mole, and two squirrels. Okay. I thought and so. And then we get, uh... We, we, like, we've already figured out that the hare's name is Bala. Two ba- Bala? squirrels, Bala. mole... It's two mice. Okay. Two mouse maids, specifically. That's right. The, the Bala. Bala? Bala. I was, I was pronouncing it internally as, um, uh, uh, Bala, like ballad. Okay, Bala. Uh, so Bala. Feldo. Because a hare would absolutely name himself that. Yeah. Feldo is about to bite into someone's tail when he's picked up by a large old female badger. Lady Badger, hello! Hold on, sorry. (laughs) I googled to see if Bala... Because you know a lot of hares end up with plant names, right? Yes, yes. I googled to see if Bala was like a plant... No, the first thing is Bala to Quincewold. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This we get. Just this asshole. Yep. All right, do you, do you want to sing the little bit in the note, too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we get the, the lady badger. All I want to do is see in this book, too, a badger woman. A badger woman. <laughs> she tells him to put his teeth away because she'll bite back and her teeth are bigger than his. Batting the other creatures out of the way, she picks up Brome as well, demanding they explain what they are doing there. Feldo ignores this demand, trying the sad remains of the pasty. He compliments its cooking, and Bala the hare picks the rest up off the ground and eats it. I mean, okay, so on one Mm. hand, yes, this is kind of typical hare, they'll eat fucking anything. Hmm. They are also a troop of traveling players, and it doesn't do to waste food. I know. I know it's kind of gross, but... (laughs) Also, like, in real life, rabbits eat their own poop sometimes, so. Well, anyway, if they'd wanted some of the pasty, all they'd had to do was ask politely. Rome is indignant at being hoisted in the air, but still introduces himself and Feldo politely. Bala takes over introducing the rambling rose-hit players. First, he introduces himself, Bala de Quincewald, actor and tragedarian. The badger is Lady Roanoke, cart puller and baritoness. The squirrel maids are Trefoil and Celandine, soubrettes, sopranos, and acrobats. Which, uh, side note, a soubrette is a coquettish sort of character archetype in opera, a stock female character. 
The mall is. I did bo- not know what that was, so I'm glad you googled it. I just yeah. assumed it had something to do with theater. Yeah. The mole is Buckler, the junior lead, comedian, and catcher. And finally, two mouse maids named Gachi and Castern. Balancers, chorus, and cooks. I think it's supposed to be Goshi. Goshi? Yeah, that's probably too. Because it's Goshi. spelled like Gosh, but it's got uh, an extra E, so it could be Goshi. Goshi. Or Gaoshi. Gaoshi. Named Gaoshi. I don't know. This, we're do. running into... I would like everyone to know... That Redwall is one of the reasons why I name characters weird bullshit. Felly. You know, you know that there would be a fucking character in Redwall whose name was Feli. And spelled Felly. With introductions done. Sorry, guys. Like, sorry. For the, for the <laughs> listeners, this is something Izzy and I have gone back and forth with for, what, almost 10 years now? Yes. Yeah. Because um, Izzy has a very delightful robot character. The name, like, Izzy pronounces the name Feli. The name is spelt F-E-L-L-I. Feli. Feli. Anyway. With introductions done, Bala asks if they'd like supper. Brome heartily says yes, and they're invited into the tent. And they're treated very kindly. They're given food and clothes by the troop. The clothes are... Something. Yeah. Like they're they're, Roanoke br- they're a little old tunics. and worn out, but two tunics similar to the ones the rest of the rose hips wore, quartered gold and crimson with a green border and black belt. It is a troop tunic. Mm-hmm. It is brightly colored. It is meant to be visible from anywhere that a person may be sitting or standing, and it is also meant to evoke a sense of comedy, mm-hmm. uh, because that is how these work. Mm-hmm. This is hey people who do costume design and theater. If you're like, what if I made it normal? Don't do that. <laughs> you're at a you theater need to brighten the colors yes. and make it so that it is visible even under lights. Okay, and from the back of the fucking theater, <laughs> unless if it's a dreary show, in which case you need to accentuate the dreariness of the costume. Listen, I have opinions about this. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Feldo is complimented on his fine form by Bala, Celandine agreeing flirtatiously. He's a bit flustered, hiding his embarrassment by eating the offered food. Brome is given a honey and blackberry pie, saying sweet things are good for the voice. Gauche says she's never heard so. Gauche. Gauche. Gauche says she's never heard so. Is it true? And Brome lets out a yodel as proof. Bala is quick to pick up a hair accordion. I think at this point, it's just anytime a hair is playing an instrument, he's just going to rename it hair. <sighs> like the Harolina. Now, I need you, I need the listeners to understand that if you did not read along with us, like if you didn't read this part of the book, what Brome does. <laughs> What Brome does before he starts singing, the way that it is written does not make it sound as if it's any good. <laughs> Without warning, Brome let forth a swift yodel with his piercing tenor voice. And the onomatopoeia for what the sound he makes is tra-la-la-la-la-la-lar. And not doing that in the volume it needs to be done at. <laughs> and I sat there and I was like, is he good at singing or is he bad? 
Well. But then as it kept going, it was like, oh, he's good at it. Okay. Because Bala is quick to pick up his hair accordion, asking if Rome knew the Babalo Riddle song. Hair accordion. Hair accordion. Yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like saying something is a snuck accordion. Snail accordion. (gasps) Or snake accordion. Welcome to Snurch. (laughs) Let's see. Rome tells him to play and he'll sing along. Rowan provides her baritone and the breasts clap along. Uh, would you like to read? Roanoke providing a baritone harmony, not he... Brome. No, I said Rowan. Oh, I thought you said Brome. No, uh, Rowan. Because uh, well, like her full she... name is Roanoke. Yeah, but sometimes Bella calls her Rowan. But that's Bella. <laughs> read the song. Bobolo, Bobolo, Bobolo. If you know, tell me where I do grow. High above the lowly earth, and yet I flourish for all I'm worth. Bobolo, Bobolo, Bobolo. Tell me now if you think you know, I hang between the earth and sky. Green or brown as the seasons pass by, as around me all the birds do fly. And just before winter away I go, away go I. Bobolo, 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 oh, oh. Tell me, true, I'd like you to try. If you, now listeners... Let's just take a moment. Comment below. <laughs> Comment, like, and Tell subscribe. Tell us what you think. <laughs> Comment in the Discord. Comment wherever you see this. Tell us what you think this riddle is. What do you think the answer is? <laughs> Sorry. That's I had okay. to do That's okay. that. At the end it's of like this... watching a YouTube video, mid-video, they're like, pause the video and comment below what you think the blood of that is. Right. It's like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> No, and uh, we don't expect it. If you do it, it'll be very funny and we'll appreciate the comedy of it, but you don't have to do it. At the end of the song, Brome is complimented for his voice. Feldo is puzzled by the riddle, and Brome answers that the answer must be a leaf. With that done, Roanoke sets herself down and asks the two to tell them their story. They do, as the night passes on quietly in good company. Now, I uh, made a comment uh, in our document that was basically just in before Brome abdicates the leadership role to Rose and joins the rambling Rosehip players because they all compliment his voice and Belas specifically says, I wish we had a tenor like you in our company. And I'm like, Brome's going to become a Rosehip player. Yeah. I can see it now. I really hope that happens. I also do. I think that he would have a fun time because it does seem like he doesn't really want to do the leadership thing. Mm-mm. And he wants to, you know, wander around. He has a very good, very easily understood voice. He'd be a good actor. He would. And now we're going to get into the part of the book where we're going to have a lot of words. Uh, As the rain... Let's just get all of our... Let's get all of it out now. No, let's let, let's get to it uh, first. Yeah. Uh, uh, As the rain stops, Martin and the other two reach the shores. They're tired and frozen, and they've landed near some high cliffs. Martin offers to look for a cave while they rest, but the other two refuse. They have a feeling there's something creepy about this spot. They make it a ways up the cliff and rest on a little ledge. Martin thinks that if they push on a little more, they might make it to a bigger ledge and some shelter. Rose promises a tired Grum that she'll get breakfast for them tomorrow so he can sleep in. It cheers him up quite a bit because, like, he's like, I'm not built for climbing. And she's My like, My paws are falling asleep. Yeah, she's like, Oh, you're a champion digger. That You can't be a champion climber as well. 
And Martin agrees, though, there's something off about this place. And uh, vibes be Not a vibe! <laughs> Not a vibe! Their climb is abruptly ended when they are caught in kelp nets, hauled up, and clubbed into unconsciousness by small on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash hs enclave this podcast is part of hearthside enclave and some other shows you might like are hope's hearth a solar hope punk actual play podcast and post-apocalyptic news radio a fallout inspired audio drama